the next three weeks, we're going to kind of unpack this. Um, these next two weeks, we'll be in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we're basically going to look at today, we're going to look at this area of uh, the, the fact that, one, you can't save you. But second of all, God can. Jesus can. And we're going to look at that today. And we're going to look and, and, and we're going to begin to see how without Christ, we basically, as the title says, we're dead men walking. Without Jesus in our life, this is who we are. Uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, motives. We're going to look at that area of our life and ask ourselves the question, why do we do the things we do? I mean, why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do we get involved? Why do we do these things as, as Christians? We're going to look at that and, and look at the real reason why we should be doing those things. And then the third week, we're going to be looking at the topic of baptism. And you'll, you'll kind of see how this all plays out over the next couple weeks. And so today, let's just kind of jump in here. If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be there today, probably in the first, just the first seven verses. But you can open that up, or you can, as we can now, you can get on your journey app. So uh, however that works. I haven't actually put it on my phone yet, so. I just got back Thursday night. I found out about it. So, you know, when, you, when you're gone, things, things change. So you, you just, I just don't know. So we get an app. I, I come in here, and the seats are just everywhere. You know, um, I've decided Chad can't set up seat, seat, seats anymore. Uh, so I, ha I came in here last night, got everything back, back in place. So that's so why I said I haven't got my app on there, plus I don't know how to do it. That's the second thing. So they'll show me this week, and I'll get my app on there. But So let's get started. So you can, you can either look at your app or look at the Bible, but Ephesians chapter 2. Back in, uh, back in about the mid-early 2000s, about 2000, right around 2005, 2006, is when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And Mel Gibson's movie was scripted as a biblical account of the last hours of Christ's life on earth. Now, depending on who you talk to, some people said it was just very violent, very graphic, and so they really didn't want to see it or go back to see it. I had the privilege, my wife and I had the privilege of being at one of the premieres at Saddleback where we got to meet Mel Gibson, we got to see it before it was released, and we had that uh, opportunity and that privilege, and my wife was one of those. She thought it was way too graphic for her. Others claimed that it was anti-Semitic, even though the producer who filmed this he actually filmed his own hand nailing Jesus to the cross because he said that he and all living human beings are equally guilty in Jesus' death. Now, not long after the movie came out, there was a letter that was sent to an editor of a newspaper from a woman by the name of Madeline Evans. After viewing the movie, this is what she wrote uh, to the editor. She said, personally, I have no problem believing what Jesus did, but I want, I, I want no responsibility for it. I will pay for my own sins. After all, I usually do. Thank you very much. I would never want anyone to go through so much suffering for me. Sadly, she didn't understand the depths of her own sin if she thought she could in any way pay for them. Now, we may be able to work on our sin. In other words, there may be things in our life that we can work on, that we can get better, that we can change, we can make right some of the things that we've made wrong. But to pay the penalty for our sin to the point 
where God would accept our efforts is an idea that is totally foreign to what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. See, the problem is there's a difference in how we view our sin and how God views it. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they forget that God's view is the one that counts. So as we come into the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to, to a group of people who also struggled. Struggled with this separation between the world and their new life. You see, God had delivered them from a pretty messed up lifestyle. I mean, they were steeped in false religions. They were steeped in idol worship. In fact, not only did they worship false gods, but a lot of the Ephesians people, they also made and sold these idols. And that always gets me, because I, I, you know, think about that for a moment. During the day, you're, you're carving and you're making these idols by hand. You're making them, and then you go home and you worship that which you made. I mean, how crazy is that? And yet that's the lifestyle that so many of these people came out of. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about Ephesus. Ephesus was situated at the mouth of the Caesta River, and it started out as a Greek trading post, but it soon grew to rival some of the major cities of the Mediterranean. It was a very busy and prosperous port city, but it was also the capital of the worship of the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. She was served by hundreds of temple prostitutes who in turn served the thriving community. So for a lot of these new believers, a lot of these young Christians, they were having a hard time distinguishing the old life from the new. They were having trouble releasing themselves from what they were to become what God was creating them to be. And so they simply lived like everyone else in their culture. Author Patrick Morley once said, he said, the American gospel has evolved into a gospel of addition without subtraction. It is a belief that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. And that marked this church in Ephesus, and it marks our society today. Let me ask you in just a moment. How many of you are good at painting? I'm not talking about painting a house or painting a room in your house. But if you are, I, could, I mean, I may be able to use you. So if that is something that you're good at, you can let me know. But how many of you are good at painting, like at, at being an artist? I mean, you can paint a picture, and it actually looks like a picture. I mean, because I can't. I mean, you wouldn't know what I painted if I did it. Or anybody, anybody like that? Anybody can do that? That's, that's awesome if you can. Or how about writing? You're a really gifted writer. I mean, when you write things, people read it and they go, wow, that's, I mean, that's awesome. Here's what I've discovered. What I've discovered over the years is those people that are really gifted, either in, in, in painting or in writing, they can take certain colors or the strokes of a brush and put it on a canvas in such a way that it speaks to you. And, and you, can, you can know exactly what they're trying to get across. Or, or somebody who, who is gifted in writing, they can just by just a few words on a piece of paper, they can say so much, and you get it. You understand it. I say that for this reason. 
Because as we come into the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, that's what we find. We find Paul painting through words a picture. He's painting for us a picture. And it's the picture of our life, how we truly are without Jesus in our heart. And what he says helps us to understand two important truths. The first one is this. You can't save you. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can't save you. Look at what Paul paints for us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So what kind of picture has Paul just painted for us? Well, if we had a canvas up here and, a, and just some buckets of paint, it would be as if Paul looked at these paints and picked out the ugliest, the most disgusting, the most depressing, the darkest colors that he could imagine. And he took those and just threw them up on this canvas. And when it was everything settled down, what was left was a picture of your life and mine the way we truly are without Christ. You see, we all share something in common. Without Jesus, life is hopeless. Without Jesus, our life is out of control. Why? Because look what Paul said. Because without Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We may look alive, but man, we are the spiritual walking dead. Spiritual zombies who are blind to the glory of Jesus. Who are deaf to the Holy Spirit who follow the ways of the world and the leading of Satan, and who only deserve, as he says, the anger and the wrath of God. That is who we are without Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a pretty picture, is it? I mean, I doubt if that's a picture you're going to hang on your wall for everyone to see. And yet it's who we truly are without Jesus in our lives. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He said, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from their sinful nature. You see, to follow the course of the world, to do what comes natural, to do what everybody else is doing, it will always produce a life of sin and will cause us Literally to be dead men walking. That's who we are. Apart from Christ. Let me illustrate it like this. Not like this, but let me illustrate it like this. When I was in college, 
I was a part of a, I traveled with CIY, uh, Christ in Youth, and I was part of a, a team, and we did lots of camps in the summer. One of my favorite places to go was in Colorado, and loved just camping and hiking and backpacking up in the mountains, especially when you got above about 8,000 feet, about 8,500. I mean, it was just so awesome and so incredible. Now, statistics will show you and tell you that every year um, there are those who get lost and wander off, either from hiking, camping, backpacking, even in the wintertime, skiers who, who decide to go do their kind of their own skiing events. And a lot of times they get lost. They wander off and they get lost. And, and unfortunately for a lot of them, when they're found, it's too late. Now, for the next few moments, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go with me in your mind. And I want you to put yourself camping in Colorado. You're up at about 8,500. You're either with your family, maybe you went with some friends, some college buddies or whatever, some work friends, but you're there and you're camping. You've had an awesome day the day before. And so that night you decide, you know what? I just want to spend some time by myself. I want to go see and experience all that the mountains has to offer for me. I just want to get away. So you decide that the next morning you're going to get up before anybody else does, and you're just going to, going to go hiking. So the next morning, that's exactly what you do. You crawl out of your, your sleeping bag, you get out quietly out of your tent, and you head off. And it's amazing. And it's beautiful. And you're just absorbing it all, taking it all in. And the unfortunate part is that you just lose track of time because it's so amazing. And you look down at your watch and you realize, I've been gone for a couple hours. And nobody knew I left. Nobody knew I was even going. So I better get back. And so you turn around and you begin to head back in the direction you thought you came from. And you walk and you walk and you walk, but you really don't see anything that, that you remember that you've seen before. And so you decide maybe it's down this trail and you, you turn down and you head down another trail and the same thing happens as you walk and walk and walk. There's nothing there that you see that you really remember and pretty soon you begin to panic a little bit. And panic makes you kind of jog a little bit and then you begin to run a little bit because you realize you have no clue where you're at. You're lost. You even stop and you even yell for a moment, but the only thing you hear is the echo of your own voice as it begins to bounce back. And then you begin to feel the effects of what will probably be your death. I read an article this past week on this. And it talked about how the high altitude and the thin air begins to take its toll on your body, especially when you put it under exertion, such as fear and stress and running. And pretty soon you begin to get dizzy. Pretty soon your body temperature begins to drop. Pretty soon you don't have the energy to even go much further and your heart begins to race and literally it will cause you either to pass out or to just collapse. And that's exactly what happens. You collapse. And you lean against the tree. 
and you say to yourself, I'm lost. Nobody knows where I'm at. Nobody knows I left. I'm lost. And I'm going to die. In fact, the article said that if people like that aren't found within 24 hours, usually they're found dead. Now, if you can put yourself in that place, then you've put yourself right where Paul leaves us at the end of verse 3. Because the reality is you can't save yourself. You can't save you. I mean, after all, you're, you're just laying there. You're almost in a stupor. You can't get up. You can't wave. You can't jump. You can't yell. You're just there. Why? Because you can't save you. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. That's why this second truth is so critical and so important. And the second truth is this. You can't save you, but Jesus can. You can't save you, but Jesus can. Just as a master artist or a skilled author, with just a few strokes of a brush or a pen, can change the whole complexity of his work. So Paul, with just a few words, changes the whole complexity of your life and mine. Look at what he says, starting in verse 4. He says this. These are probably two of the most amazing words in the Bible. But God. But God. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. But God, who is so rich in mercy, who loved us so much, has saved us. Let's go back to our story. Because you're just leaning against the tree. No energy. You can't stand, you can't jump, you can't yell. You're just there. When all of a sudden, in the distance, you begin to hear the sound of the blades of a helicopter as they beat against the air. And the sound gets louder and louder, closer and closer, and you want to jump, but you can't. You want to stand and wave, but you can't. You want to yell, but you can't. You see, there's nothing you can do at that moment that's going to save you. But it gets louder and louder, and then you hear footsteps as they hit the ground. And then you feel the most wonderful feeling that you've ever felt. You feel arms reach around you, and they pick you up. 
And at that moment, you say to yourself, I was lost, but I've been found. I was going to die, but I've been saved. I've been saved. Let me tell you, it's not because of who we are or what we have or what we've done. It's only because who he is and the fact that he loved us that much that you and I have been saved. Now you may think you don't need him. You may think you can do life apart from him. You may think you can just go through the motions then at the very end all of a sudden everything would just be okay. You may think that. But let me tell you, God knows that you desperately need him. After all, without him, we are dead men walking. But because he loves us so much, he meets us right where we are to give us what we could never get on our own and to take us to where we could never go. Think about it this way. If our greatest need had been money, guess what? God would have sent us a financial advisor. If our greatest need had been knowledge, God would have sent us a professor. If our greatest need had been wisdom, God would have sent us a philosopher. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for salvation and was for redemption and was for resurrection to take place in our heart. And it was for forgiveness. So guess what? God sent a savior. And he sent a redeemer who paid our debts, who met the demands of justice so that we might be saved and we might be forgiven. Let me tell you, never, ever take for granted what God has done for you in Christ. Never take it for granted. Because God didn't just have to perform CPR on us. It wasn't like we just passed out for a moment and our heart stopped for a moment. God had to resurrect us. Why? Because we were dead. We were dead in our sins. We'll never take for granted what God has done because through the death of Jesus, we have been made whole and he has resurrected us. Now, you want to know why baptism is so important in our life? I'm not going to say a lot this morning because I'm going to preach on that in two weeks. But let me give you just this for just a moment. You want to know why it's so important? It's because your baptism is an outward sign of the resurrection that has already taken place in your heart. It's an outward sign of that resurrection that has taken place. That's why baptism was always done by immersion. That's because the word means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, or as I've said before, to put under until you bubble. That's baptism. And the Bible says it represents our death, our burial, and our resurrection. It's that outward sign. Sprinkling didn't even come about until the later centuries. It was brought in by the teachings of man. And so there comes a point when you have to decide, do I follow man or do I follow what the Bible says? We're going to talk about that more in two weeks. But it represents what's already happened in your heart. Now, how should this affect us? 
How should this affect the way we live? Well, one thing is this. It should cause us to be so excited about being saved that we cannot help but share the life we've been given. You get that? It should cause us to be so excited for what God has done for us that we can't help but tell other people. Let's go back to our story for just a moment. Because after you're saved, they fly you to Denver. And there you spend two days in the hospital recovering. But when you get home, you get in your house, you put your bags away, maybe you go through the couch and you just kind of sit down, grab the remote, begin to watch your favorite shows, I don't know. And then all of a sudden you hear this. It's the knock on your door, and so you go answer it. And when you answer it, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, and they're standing there going, wow, man, I heard what happened to you. You, you were out hiking by yourself. You got lost. They didn't know if they could find you. They thought you were going to die. You thought you were going to die. But all of a sudden, they spotted you from the air, and you were saved. And you look at them, and you go, it really wasn't that big a deal. You know, I, I really don't want to talk about it. You know, it was just one of those things. Yeah, I should have wondered off. Da, 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 da. Now, let me tell you, if that had been me, I would no longer, I wouldn't no sooner got into my house, got my bags down, than I would have been at my neighbors or my friends or my family members knocking on their door going, did you hear what happened? I was out hiking and I wandered off. And I thought I was going to die. I didn't know if they could ever find me or not, but then I was saved. Let me tell you, if you don't remember anything else that you've heard today, you remember this. You'll never get excited about being saved until you realize that you were once lost. You'll never be excited about being saved until you realize you were once lost. Again, sometimes we think we can just skate in on the coattails of our grandparents or our mom and dads or our friends or whatever. And we can just live like we want. You can't do that. Without Jesus Christ in your life, if you've never accepted him personally in your heart as your Lord and Savior, you are just as lost as the murderer or the prostitute is out on the street corner today. And until you realize that apart from Jesus, you are lost, and it's only through Christ that you can be found and be saved, you'll never be excited. But when you realize that, you won't be able to contain the joy that's in your heart. Now, we need to close. And as we do, I wonder how many of us really understand the fact that salvation is only found by believing in Jesus. I mean, you can't save you. And guess what? Your family can't save you. Grandma and grandpa can't save you. Mom and dad can't save you. Your friends can't save you. Oprah can't save you. <laughs> Muhammad, Buddha, or any other so-called religious leader can't save you, but Jesus can. The Bible is very clear that salvation is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And why is this so important for us to understand? It's this, because as long as you think that you can somehow save yourself or somehow skate in on the coattails of someone else, you will continue to live as you please. 
Sin will be no big deal. And you'll continue to struggle with mixed and impure motives. Here's the reality that most of us don't want to think about. But it was brought home to me these last two weeks. And that is this. One day there will be a final day of reckoning. The Bible is very clear about this. That there will be an end to our life. There will be an end to human history. And every person who has ever lived will stand before a holy God. And I believe the only thing that God will be concerned about is this. Who did you rely on for your salvation? Who atoned for your sin? I mean, after all, someone must pay the penalty for your sin. And there are only two options. Option one, you can self-atone. I mean, every person has that right to choose this option. In other words, you can take the hit. You can take the punishment. But let me tell you, bad idea. Okay? That's a bad idea. The reason is this, because if you choose to self-atone, the Bible is very clear that you will be separated from God for all eternity. That's why option two is so amazing. We can allow Christ's death to pay the penalty for our sin. God says, while you were dead men walking, I spilled the blood of my son so that you don't have to live without an eternity for an eternity separated from me. He paid your price. He fulfilled the requirements for justice. He took the hit so that you could be brought back to life. You see, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we get a new heart. Our diseased and sin-stained heart is exchanged with his. The holy for the unholy, and they switch places. And through Jesus, God made healthy what was sick, right what was wrong, straight what was crooked, and holy what was unholy. That's why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 17, look what he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And then down in verse 21, look what it says. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. How awesome is that? The bottom line is, you can't save you. But the good news is this. Jesus can. And he wants to. But the choice is yours. He's not going to force himself on you. But it is your choice. So what will you choose? Worship team is going to make their way up at this time. And we just need to spend some time reflecting. Maybe, maybe you've never accepted Jesus in your life, in your heart. And if that's you, then maybe this is the day that will change the rest of your life. And not only your life, but your eternity. Or maybe you're more like the church in Ephesus. You came to Christ at some point, but you've just continued to live the way you want. Continue to follow the world. And so maybe today is the day you need to make a choice who you'll follow. As you know, I've been gone for the last two weeks, got back Thursday night. So I had no idea 
what Adam had picked out for music for today. But that's okay because you know what? God did. And first service, when they began to sing, or when he began to play in the background this song, I heard it in my head, and I thought, thank you, God. Thank you. Because there's not a more perfect song for this time than what they're going to play and sing. So I don't know where you're at, and I don't know what you need, but God does. And if you have anything in your life right now that's standing between you and your relationship with Jesus, today's the day you need to take care of it. So my encouragement is this. I've asked them to go ahead and sing just through this one time, just the first part, first verse. And as they sing, I want you to think about those words. And I want you to think about your life. And if you need to do anything, then you just get up and you come and sit down here because we want to pray with you. And we want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. So let's reflect and listen as they sing.